Come on down front, find Dr. Molecule. And uh, we can be finding Revelation chapter 19 while the kids are heading down. I uh, was thinking about something um, this morning that I, I guess I hadn't really, I don't know, understood before, which is that the preparation um, for Sunday morning, uh, there's a philosophy that kind of comes in behind that that I hadn't really defined for myself before this morning, uh, but what, what happens for me, uh, my expectation is that uh, every Sunday, every worship is like a revival service, that uh, we, we don't take for granted the worship or the message, that it's not uh, routine, it's not just, well, let's get through this, but there's always an expectation that um, God is going to move and that people are going to respond to the working of the Holy Spirit and uh, it's always important uh, what we do here. And so um, just thinking through that, uh, I, I thought, you know, one of the things that happens is that, you know, we put such an emphasis on uh, the truthfulness of the message, which it, it has to be, it needs to be. Uh, biblically true and accurate, but it also needs to be, and these aren't in conflict with each other, but it also needs to be an experience uh, because uh, something happens when you realize that Jesus died for me and I'm a sinner and that uh, I get forgiveness through his blood and uh, there's a, a reality of, of, okay, I need to do something with that. And then I confess with my mouth Jesus is Lord, and then I believe in my heart God raised him from the dead, that he is alive. And because he is alive, I have to or need to, and I want to have a relationship with him and an experience with him. Um, and that happens any given day, but especially we seek that out on Sunday mornings. And so what are the, one of the things that we are seeking to do here is to um, really apply the grace that he offers. And we've been um, seeking Christ for, for forever, but you know, in these last few weeks as we approach Easter and as we come into contact with uh, that wonderful saving grace, um, and then from there until now, for the last three weeks, we've been really looking at Jesus as the risen, glorified, powerful, Christ, that he's alive. And we've seen how worthy he is of our worship, that he had all power, and he was willing in his humility to use that power for others, for us, that he would lay his life down as a sacrifice that we might know God. And so it's going to be a little bit shocking, uh, perhaps, this morning as we approach Revelation chapter 19 because what we're going to see is another aspect of Jesus, okay? He is merciful, he is gracious, he, he is love, and he is uh, willing to lay his life down for us, but at, there's coming a point, um, and Revelation reveals this, and all of God's word reveals this, but there's coming a point when 
the invitation to receive his mercy and grace has been extended enough. And uh, when he returns in glory, when he comes back to this earth and he is returning, um, there is judgment. And so why, you know, every week we hope and pray for and seek a revival is because if you don't receive the mercy that he extends to us now, there's only judgment later. And we can rejoice in that. We come and we thank God for it and we praise God and we worship and we sing. And, but uh, there's also an urgency on our hearts that those who don't know Christ now need to hear the message and they need to receive the truth and they need an experience with Christ because if their only experience with Christ is when he returns, <laughs> that, that experience is not going to be um, something they are going to enjoy. And so we're going to proclaim the, the power of the grace, but we also have to warn about the power of the judgment. And that's uh, part of what we're going to be exploring this morning. So let's read Revelation chapter 19, and we're going to pick it up in verse 11. Let's stand as we do that. And Maddie, can I have you turn me down just a little bit? Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed and fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And Father, we thank you for the mercy that you give us in warning that there's coming a day that uh, we need to be ready for, that uh, we can be absolutely confident about, uh, that we know the salvation, the mercy, the grace, the love of Christ. But also, Lord, that we expect the judgment as much as we fear for our loved ones and those who have not yet uh, received salvation in the name of Christ, Lord, we, we know that uh, this world cannot continue as it is. That uh, it has to be reconciled once and for all to your holiness. And uh, Lord... Thank you that you desire, first of all, to reconcile the world through grace. But when the invitation of grace has been fully extended, been 
There's no other option <laughs> but judgment, Lord. And uh, we know that that in itself is holy and righteous too. And so, God, we pray that we would claim the true gospel, the message of Jesus, Lord, and we would take it uh, to every corner of the earth for your glory, for the sake of those who need to hear who you are. Um, Lord, we pray that you would empower people to come alive, to come to know you, to uh, be redeemed. And uh, Lord, we pray that we would rejoice in the redemption that we have in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, as we uh, plunge into Revelation chapter 19, one of the things that we're going to do, we're going to walk through the, the names of Jesus, the terminology used to describe him. Um, but one of the, the experiences that uh, the world is going to have, okay, when this occurs, when Jesus is revealed, is that heaven is going to be torn open and Jesus is going to break into our physical experience, that what we consider natural and um, mortal and normal, um, he's going to spiritually um, break into it and reveal all that is really true and really real. Um, he said in the Gospels that uh, the kingdom of God is not far from you. It's near to us. It's in your heart. It's close by. And so uh, this idea that Jesus is going to come to the earth, sometimes we picture it like he's going to be beamed down from space, right? Like it, there's going to be like a break in the clouds and this beam of light and Jesus is going to come down. It's not going to be like that, okay? Um, it's going to be a little different. There's a spiritual reality that's going to be torn open and poured out on the earth. And every eye will see and every ear will hear and every mind will know across the whole globe because Jesus is going to physically touch down in Israel and yet every person in the whole world will know what's happened at, at the same moment. How does that happen? It, it happens because we will know it through a spiritual awakening and we'll see it with spiritual eyes. And one of the things that has happened to many, if not most, of those in this room and those listening and watching is that there came a point in your life where spiritual realities uh, became actual realities to you. That uh, somewhere along the way, um, you heard the truth of God's word, you saw it lived out in, in somebody's life, the Holy Spirit took the truth and took that experience and made it come alive in your heart and changed you. And you, you came alive to spiritual realities. And it becomes to us even more real than this world. Can I get an amen? It, it becomes so real that the, the, the nature of God and our relationship with him and what he wants and what his will is that you begin to almost distance yourself from 
the things of this world and attach yourself to the spiritual realities that you begin to see um, the warfare that is going on not only in your own life but in other people's lives that uh, when people are um, attached to sinful things you, you don't just see it as a normal course of of habit you see it as a spiritual tearing that something is happening that there's there's darkness that has gripped some people and that somehow you can intercede for them and pray for them and the Holy Spirit can begin to rip away you know those entanglements um, and you start to see that kind of happening in your own life. You, you flow back and forth between, uh, I need more of God, and then there's things that I get attached to, and I need to break away from those things, and I need to come back to the Lord. And that's why, you know, our worship service um, is more than a, a weekly habit. It's, a, um, it's like oxygen <laughs> that you need to keep going because there's um, a suffocating stench of worldliness that we find ourselves in through the week that we need to be cleansed from somehow. Does this do all of that for you, or is this pushing you into a relationship with the Lord that gives you the strength to get through it day to day? That spiritual reality is what we're, we're talking about. There's, there's more to Jesus than meets the eye, and he's going to reveal more of his nature when he returns. And so, he's called by all these names. He's called uh, faithful and true. And, you know, we look at that and we say, well, yeah, I mean, that's, of course, Jesus is faithful and true. He's going to do what he said he's going to do. I'm going to um, rely on the, the work of David Jeremiah, Dr. David Jeremiah, for a moment. Uh, he says in the book of Signs, uh, his, his book uh, on end times prophecy. He says that the reason why we say he is faithful and true is because he fulfills the prophetic words of Scripture in his life. Okay, he's faithful because he, he accomplishes what God said about him from the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, here's, here's what he continues on to say that there are, and I didn't do my own research on this, I'm relying on his, but he says there are 333 specific prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. Uh, 112 of them were fulfilled in his first coming, which means that 221 specific messianic prophecies will be fulfilled in his return, in his second coming. One-third was fulfilled in his first coming. Two-thirds will be fulfilled in his second coming. So let me translate that for you. One of the things that that indicates for us is that we believe uh, that Jesus is faithful to save. Would you agree with that? Why? Just because you want that to be true? Or because he declared that to be true? Because... The Word of God tells us that that's true, and then uh, we see it lived out not only in the Word of God, but also in our lives, and we say that that is a, an absolute truth. I can rely on Jesus to save me if I will call on His name. I can't save myself. 
No matter what I do, I cannot save myself, but he can save me. He said that he would, and my confidence in salvation is in his promise. In his life, his death, his resurrection, and what he said. He's faithful to that. If that's not true, then we have no hope of salvation. Okay? If it relies on your ability to believe it, then you're lost. It's him. He, he said he would do it, and he will do it. Okay, now as a believer, if I cling and hope for that and I rely on that, I'm confident in that, then I also have to take the next step, which is to believe that he is returning. He will come back. And this is why the Jewish people um, in Jesus' day, it's partly why, they had such a hard time grasping the nature of Jesus' salvation because Two-thirds of what they understood about the Messiah had to do with the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ, the earthly reign, the, the rule of, of the iron scepter, that he would come and he would restore Israel and he would uh, uh, let them reign with him and they would fulfill all the promises to the Jewish people that God had proclaimed to them. That was their, their mindset. This is what, what it means to, to be the Messiah and what he's going to do. And so... They jumped past the grace directly to the judgment. Aren't you glad that there is grace in between so that we could be included in that? But he's, he's going to return, and he's going to restore this earth to what it was intended. And so he's faithful, he's true, he is the truth. And a lot of uh, believers today are just dismissive of the second coming. We don't seem to care about it. We're not concerned about it. It's not our, our worry. It's not our hope. You know, my hope is that I'm saved and I get to go to heaven. Um, but the reality is that we need to keep the return front and center in our minds because it gives us the urgency to share the gospel with those around us. It's not just the end of a person's life that we should be concerned with it because the end could happen at any moment. So he's faithful and true. He will fulfill his promises. And, and then it says that there's a name written that no one knows. And listen, this is part of this whole issue. Um, part of this, we say we can't make too many assumptions. It's a name that no one knows, but he himself. But Here's one thing that I would say, if, if God would permit me to say this. Um, part of what that means, um, see how I'm qualifying this? <laughs> part of what that means is that um, it's not known because it's not received. Acts 4.12, I may be wrong on my address here, somewhere in there, says, there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. No other name. What name is that? Jesus. But in John 1, 11, it says that he came to his own, that which he had made, okay, Jesus is creator of the universe, that which we, he had made, that which belongs to him, he's the owner of it, and his own did not receive him, or some translations say his own did not know him. Okay, and so what's happening here is that the name of Jesus, the, the ministry of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus has been declared across 
the world. Um, let's just take our own nation for an example. Okay, there are many nations that are still hearing uh, about Jesus, uh, but our nation has been inundated with the gospel. They don't know him because they don't receive him. Not because they haven't heard about him, but because they won't accept what he did and who he is. And that gap between knowledge and acceptance is, is why there's so much evil, wickedness, um, callousness, immorality. It, there's a mocking. I mean, if you go out into anywhere, anywhere in this community, okay, it, much less the world, you're going to hear the name of Jesus. How are you going to hear it? As a blessing or a curse? The name of God as a blessing or a curse? More often than anyone would care to. He's mocked, he's rejected, he's ridiculed, he's downplayed. That's the nature of the world. And that's one thing, okay, but here's, here's the biggest concern that we should have is that among Christians, among people who worship and come to church and, and proclaim the name of Jesus as Savior, um, sometimes, and this is a controversial uh, practical issue here, so some of you may not love this, but um, among believers, the name of Jesus is also used as a curse. Can you tell me how that's possible? The Bible says that it's not possible. James specifically says that fresh water, salt water cannot come from the same spring. Blessing and curse cannot come from the same mouth. It says that only by the Holy Spirit can you declare Jesus is Lord. Which means that if you can use Jesus' name as a curse, if that name comes off of your mouth, off your tongue, out of your mouth, as a curse, as a derogatory name, then, are you following me? Then it seems not possible that he is your Lord. And here's the problem that as a, as a pastor, or, you know, I might get labeled as a, somebody who's too rigid, um, maybe I'm too puritanical, I don't know. I'm just too conservative, maybe, for some people. But here's the deal. It's not a habit that you need to break. It's a relationship that you need to begin. You leave this place knowing that what I just said ref refers to you, then don't be mad at me. I mean, you can be mad at me, that's fine, but... You go get alone with the Lord and say, God, what's going on with me, with my heart? I say that you're Lord, and yet I'm still allowing my tongue to renounce what I believe in my heart. How is that possible? Let God do the work in you. He can do it. You believe that? He'll take that right out of your mouth, and, and you will not from this day forward, use 
that word, the name of God, the name of Jesus, as a curse ever again. I believe that. It's not because you decided. It's because you get alone with the Lord and you say, God, please do this in me. Confirm in my heart that I am yours. And by the Spirit of God, only by the Holy Spirit of God can you proclaim Jesus as Lord. The Holy Spirit of God living in you will not let you use his name that way. I don't believe. So it's a, it's a heart issue that you can deal with. A name written that no one knows. Once you receive it, here's, here's the next part. His name is called the Word of God. I get a little nervous um, sometimes when I hear people say um, they don't like reading the Bible. I, I get it in one sense. I understand. There are difficult parts. I've just recently read through the book of Leviticus. <laughs> it's not easy. You know, there are things in there. It's just kind of hard, kind of not necessarily inspiring. You know, you're talking about how to deal with mold issues and skin issues and all kinds of priestly duties and all that kind of stuff. But here's the thing, is that this book declares and um, reveals who Jesus is. Would you agree? Paid from cover to cover, reveals who Jesus is. It is above my taste. And so, yes, there are parts of it that are more applicable and more inspiring than others at different moments in my life. But I come to the Word of God with reverence because He has given us a revelation of who He is in this book. And so, we proclaim, every Sunday, we proclaim the Word of God. We don't pro proclaim opinions and poems and news articles. I mean, it's okay to bring those things into, you know, our understanding of what God is saying, but we want to spend all of our time possible talking about what the Word of God says and what it means, because that's what's going to help us to live for Him. It reveals who Jesus is. He is not only the Word of God. Okay, so I am just encourage you, read the Bible, read a chapter a day, whatever, I mean, but read it with reverence for God. God, what do you want to show me in your Word? Show me who you are. Show me what this means and how it applies to my life. But show me uh, uh, an indication or a facet of your nature. But he's also the creative word of God. He is the creator of everything that exists. And he's also the creative will of God. So that he covers every aspect of life. Your mind, your body, your spirit, your will, your emotions. He covers all of that. We'll, we'll get to that a little bit more in a minute. But he is the word of God. He is every intention of God. He is the truth. You begin to relate to Jesus and have an have a actual daily um, talk with him, and it, he begins to make sense of the things that you can't make sense of. And then it says uh, <laughs> something interesting about us. Verse 14, And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. So here's where uh, insert your name here goes, Okay. If you are a believer today, if you trust Jesus Christ today, then this, this is referring to you. 
I believe, okay, Revelation chapter 19, by this point in the end times and the tribulation, we are going to be with him in heaven, okay? So where are you when he returns? You're riding along behind him. Now, I think um, we will be armed, I hope. Um, I don't know what kind of weapon you guys are hoping for, but I, I just recently watched Braveheart, so I'm thinking <laughs> one of those, what is, what's that called, that big two-handed sword, Claymore? That'd be cool. That'd be like taller than me, I think. But, uh, and then maybe a little dagger. So you got the big sword, probably have to go off across the back. And just a little dagger. Like, anybody read um, the story in... First Samuel about Jonathan. You're there. You, Jonathan's one of my favorite Bible characters. Um, he's the son of Saul, King Saul. Um, great, faithful, believing um, man of God. Well, he says, um, you know, God can save by few or by many. Let's go up and see what God's going to do. And he goes up and he attacks a Philistine camp by himself with his armor bearer. Okay, and they go through, and he says, if they call us up, then that means we get to go kill them all. If they say, stay there, then, well, I guess we're dead. Basically, I'm paraphrasing. Well, they say, come on up here. So he's like, all right, God's given them into our hands. They go up there, and Jonathan's just start slaying everybody. And it says the armor bearer coming behind Jonathan is just like, stab, just making sure they're dead. So, I don't know. I partly... Here's what's going to happen, okay? I know this for a fact. The weapons that we have, you will not use, okay? He's going to do it all. He's going to, by the word of his mouth, he's going to slay the armies of, of Satan, of the Antichrist, of wickedness. He's going to take care of all of it. But we get to ride behind him as a conquering procession in somehow our our glory that he's given to us, the white robes. I mean, he's talking about, here's what I've done for you. Come on, let's, let's see what I'm going to do here. That's, that is the, the hopeful expectation of every believer that when this day comes, that's where we are. If you ever wonder, like, oh, where am I going to be? What's going to happen? That's where you will be. So <laughs> you get to live your life knowing that that's going to be the case. But also, again, urgently warning everyone else that, hey, you can be here with me. You don't have to fear or wonder or question or hope. I mean, you can know confidently that you're going to be with Christ riding behind him. It says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. What that means is, finally, the world will be run the way that it ought to be run. Okay? He's going to rule it for a thousand years, presently, manifestly, powerfully, graciously, benevolently, but he's going to do it unquestioningly without compromise. There will be not a, a scent or a hint of evil for a thousand years. He's going to rule the earth completely. The rod of iron simply means his strength will be applied. Amen?
That's, we get to be part of that. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. If uh, some of this sounds strange to you, listen, it, it did not sound strange to the Jewish people. They, they knew all about this. Uh, Isaiah chapter 63, um, just for an example, one example, says, Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments? Why? <laughs> He's going to tell us why. Uh, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. So Isaiah is asking this question. He's seeing it. He's asking. And then God responds. He says, it is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. That's what he wants to do. He wants to save. He says, why is your apparel red? Isaiah is asking God, asking Jesus. Your garment's like him who treads the winepress, got all splattered with something red. Verse 3, God answers, says, I have trodden the winepress alone. From the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger, trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. It doesn't sound too pleasant. It's not the picture of God that we tend to want to proclaim, is it? Oh, he's loving and gracious. He's kind of winking at your sin, and he doesn't really care too much because he really just loves you, and whatever you want to do is fine with him. God loves the world so much that he hates sin radically, okay? He hates it with an unending hatred. We, we wink at sin like it's no big deal. He, he wants to eradicate it from your life by washing you with the blood of Jesus. And if you will refuse that, there's only judgment. We look at the world like we're just innocent and ignorant. And God looks at the world like we are in mutiny to him. That we have hijacked his world and done our will with it. I mean, that's, that's how he looks at it. He says, I'm going to return. I'm going to put it all right. I'm going to put my son in charge. That's what's going to happen. The Bible tells us that there is a ruler of this world. Do you know who it is? This is the, the, the prince, the power of the air. First uh, John tells us that he who um, is in you is greater than he who is what? In the world. He's talking about God is sovereign, but Satan has manipulated and controlled nearly everything that we see. He's going to undo that. He's already, by God's grace, started to undo that work in you. Amen? Do you feel it? Like that? He says that uh, you are no longer slaves to sin. You are more than conquerors in Christ who saved you. He, he, he's begun to pull you out of the mire of self-interest and self-will and bring you into the kingdom of light through Jesus. So in verse 16, it says, um, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. What that means is that uh, he is the rightful ruler, owner of everything. And so in Daniel, it's interesting because... Um, 
Daniel actually says Nebuchadnezzar is king of kings. Have you ever seen this before? Uh, Daniel chapter 2, verse uh, 37, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has requested that uh, somebody tell him what his dream is and interpret it. He didn't tell him what the dream was. He just said, you need to tell me what my dream was and interpret it. Um, he's about to kill all the wise men of his nation if they can't do this. Um, Daniel says, hold on, <laughs> let me ask God about this and we'll see what we can do. So God reveals the dream to him, and then he goes to Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. That sounds like a pretty high exaltation of King Nebuchadnezzar. Would you agree? But Nebuchadnezzar, after hearing Daniel tell him the dream and the interpretation, he comes in verse 47, the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. And here's the difference. Nebuchadnezzar, as great and powerful as he was, was still just a manager of what God had allowed him to have. And Nebuchadnezzar recognized for at least that moment that God was the true owner of everything. So he said, You're king of kings. Truly. Now, keep that in mind for a second. When you come to church, what are you coming for? I, you know, I started to think through this. I'm like, okay, you know, I, I expect, I hope for, pray for a revival every week. I, I want to see people come to know Jesus Christ. Amen? Are you... Encouraged by that? That's How many people are coming to church because they want to know how to get saved? Some, maybe, a few. How many people come to church because um, somebody made me? <laughs> how many people come to church because uh, I, I'm a Christian and I'm so thankful for what God has done in my life that I want to just return my thanks and praise him. How many come because I'm a Christian and that's what I'm supposed to do? It's my obligation. It's my, you know, I, um, that's what Christians do, right? They go to church. Probably a lot more of those than would raise their hand. So be careful with that one because you might miss what it is that God's trying to do here. And then there, I thought there's probably some, maybe a lot, who come because we're looking for more instruction and more inspiration and more motivation to be the people that God's called us to be. Some of those. But here's what happens no matter which category you're in, unless you've not claimed Christ, is that you have stepped, the first step into saying, Jesus is king of kings. He's my king. Amen? You, you say, Jesus is my king. I believe in him. I trust him for salvation. I trust him with my life. I've... Now, the problem for some, maybe many, is that we think that that's the end of the issue. 
instead of the beginning. That I've done what I need to do with God, and so therefore, I'm good. And I come to church, and I enjoy it, and, and it's necessary, and, and all those things. But I'm kind of doing what I, I need to do. And what's happening is that we've declared one thing, you know, with half of our heart, but we're not living it with the rest of our life, which is that if Jesus is king of kings, then what it means is that he really is the owner of your life. And that's a cliche thing to say. He's the owner of your life. Okay, great. What does that mean? What does it really mean? Day to day, moment by moment, situation by situation. He's the owner of uh, your body. Everybody have the body they want? Anybody like me would like to have sat down ahead of time and given a list of things I'd like to, you know, you know just six feet or so. I mean, I'm not saying I have to be tall, tall, just... I mean, he did get one thing right with my hairstyle, but... You know, you, he owns it, and, and I'm making kind of fun of it, but here's the thing. There are people who, they're stressed out, worried, concerned, angry, fearful because their body is not functioning correctly. And they're desperate for God to rescue them, do something, change, heal, restore. Would you agree? And I get that, and... and I praise God for good health every day that I have good health. But he's the owner of each and every body. That body that you have, you didn't design it, you didn't choose it, it's, it's the, just the one that you got. And guess what? You get a new one, a much better one one day. But you take that body, whatever it is, and you say, God, uh, use it for your glory. And if you choose to heal it, praise the Lord. If you choose to end my life tomorrow, then let me praise you today, right? The amount of money that you have, the possessions that you think you own, you, you know, we know that that's a joke. Who owns it? But we act like we own it. And then God will we'll give you a little portion back and, and please do great things with this portion that I'm going to give to you. He's, I own all of it. So whatever comes and goes and however, just be faithful to understand that he owns it. Who cares about your kids more than you do? Your parents, your brothers, your sisters, your coworkers, those people that you're so desperate that God would save them, that something would change in their life. You know, God cares about them more than you do. It doesn't relieve us of our responsibility, but it just means that he's in charge and he's in control and I need to give these people to him. Not accuse him of wrongdoing if they don't do what I want them to do. He owns everything. He, he's got a plan for your life. You want to go somewhere, you want to be something, you want to do something, you want to have a, a job, you want to have a, a lifestyle, whatever it is, you're like, oh God, would you please give this to me? And he says, I own your life. You give it to me, and I will make the most of it. You keep trying to control it, 
and you're going to damage what I've blessed. So here's the final application. You say Jesus is king of kings. Get familiar with the radical idea that he really does own everything that you are and everything about you and everything that you have and everything that you will ever have and every situation that you're going to be in and whatever God's plan is for your future, he's got it all. And I'll tell you what will happen. Your stress level will come down. Okay? Your productivity for him will rise because you're going to start to see every day really is the day that he made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you are King of Kings, Lord. You are the owner of everything that we have, everything that we are. You alone know how to manage it best to use it to its fullest extent and glory. Lord, we pray that as we submit these things to you, Lord, we don't just hope for heaven, but that we um, have a great expectation of what you can accomplish any day, anywhere, any time, with anyone. You can take the what we would say the least of these and do great things. You can change schools. You can change families. You can change workplaces because you can change a human heart. And we're just praying that you would start with us right now. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite you to something a little different than maybe normal. I want to just really invite you If you are feeling the movement of the Holy Spirit to consecrate your life to Jesus as King, okay, do you understand what that means? It means I'm committed to a new philosophy of my life. He owns it. He can do what he wants with it. Take a moment to walk to the front of the stage. You don't have to necessarily kneel. You don't have to stay long. It's just a sign in your heart that I'm consecrating my life to the Lord to use how he wants. Amen? You can come for just one second and go back to your seat, but I'm inviting you. If you don't do it because anybody else is doing it, please do it because the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart to say, That's what I've been missing.